Welcome to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. This is a podcast where you can join in the journey of other recovering alcoholics and addicts. You'll be on the road with them as you listen to how each person came into recovery and how they persevered through times of anger, sadness, fear, and joy. I am your host, Howard M. I am here to share my own experience as well as the experience of other recovering brothers and sisters. I am so grateful you have joined me today. This episode is with Dennis D. from Hillsborough, New Jersey. Dennis has been sober since January 23rd of 1996. Dennis was kind enough to arrange for us to use his neighbor's house so that we could record the episode in a face-to-face setting. During my conversation with Dennis, I was reminded of how challenging sobriety can be after you get sober and then have to deal with other family members and their respective addictions. He helped me understand the sacrifices necessary not only to his success, but the ensuing success of his children in elevating their hope and progress in their own recovery journey. He is also a fantastic example of how dedicated service work can have an impact on both newer members as well as those of us who have been around for decades. Here now is my interview with Dennis D. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. I'm your host, Howard M., and this episode features Dennis D. from Hillsborough, New Jersey. Dennis has been sober since January 23rd, 1996. Dennis, I'd like to welcome you to the Seasons of Sobriety podcast. Thank you, Howard, and uh, thank you for inviting me to uh, participate in this. I think it's a very worthwhile venture on your part, so thank you. Oh, of course, and I know from what we've discussed prior to you know, sitting down to record this that, that this is going to really help a lot of people. So. What I'd like to do is uh, I'm ask you to go back to 1996 or maybe even 1995 towards the end of the year, those last mm-hmm. few weeks or months of, of uh, time before you got into the program and tell us what you were thinking, what you were feeling and maybe how you decided uh, it, it might be a good idea for me. Yeah, well, you know, it's, uh, it took a long time to get to that point, obviously, because I was a true believer in denial. But towards the very end, that downward spiral got to be like a tornado, and it really started to impact everything. I was to the point where I was going to lose my job. I was going to lose my family because I, I was no longer able to even physically do anything other than lay on the couch or be able to get in my car and go to the liquor store uh, to get something and come back. So the lies get to the point where I'm given every lie in the world I can to work about why I'm not showing up. I'm trying to get my wife to... Uh, be the one to tell them this, and finally she's saying no. And then one event occurred more than anything that uh, did it was I was caught, like supposedly with my back hurt terribly, and my wife uh, walked in on me with a, you know, with a a large bottle of vodka, tipped up side down, just chugging from it. And she said, basically, that's it. We're done. And, you know, I felt kind of like, you know, not, not that I had to do something, but I felt like a rat in the corner. (laughs) <laughs> okay. And there was no option there anymore. And I had uh, run into, actually, I had a neighbor who was in the program. And uh, he, he lived right across the courtyard from me. And I'd been introduced <laughs> for the first time to people in AA that Christmas, the Christmas before, and, you know, so Christmas 95. And we, he had a tree trimming party. So I went in with my wife. And of course, I was, you know, half in a bag when I got there. He didn't really have any alcohol there, so I wanted to make the stay as, as quick as possible. 
But when we were leaving, and there were all people in there that were in recovery, basically okay. out of Piscataway, a place called Friendship Hall, okay. which is a great place uh, that has meetings throughout the day here in New Jersey. And um, I was listening to these people. And the one thing I did notice was because I always thought people who were sober would be just, just these mean, scroogey kind of people because they weren't getting what they needed, you know. And what it turned out to be, there were a lot of people smiling and happy with their significant others in the room. And that was a takeaway I had. To this day, I remember that. But the other thing I remember from that night was when we left, he took me by the shoulder and he said, if you need help, please contact me. Okay. And I didn't have to ask him about what, uh -huh. because it was fairly apparent in his eyes that he knew exactly who I was and what I was. Hmm. So when I left there, that stuck in my mind. So when that come to you know what meeting came when my wife said that's it I can't do this anymore you, you're just she said what are you going to do and I said call John <laughs> the guy across the way and she called him and and literally he came over and he he it was great you know he he kind of said this is what you got to do and he called carrier which is the clinic I went to at the time and uh he called the local treatment facility in my area and, uh, and he made arrangements for me to go in the very next day. That was on the 22nd that it was. So I okay. went in the next morning. And, you know, to be honest with you, when I went in there, I was full of fear, obviously, sure. because I didn't know I was going to start this. It was overwhelming. And I felt like a failure. And I felt like a failure because I couldn't manage to control my drinking. You know, mm. I thought I was a control freak kind of thing. And I thought I was always going to be able to do that. But because I couldn't, I felt like a failure. And so I went in, I was, and well, when I got in there, I was surrounded with people who felt the same way. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, so that was a really good thing. So those were the things that led up. I mean, obviously, 30 years of heavy drinking and other substances throughout my career of active <laughs> Uh, you know, alcohol is <laughs> what an illustrious addiction. career it's been. Yeah, my illustrious career. You know, the thing I was afraid of the most was I, by the time I had gone in there, I couldn't go like two or three hours a day without drinking. Huh. And okay. I was afraid of that. So I kept asking them, like, how are you going to keep me from like freaking out? And right. uh, they, they said, don't worry about it. You just worry about, you know, resting up and everything. And uh, the, the best thing that happened was literally. The next day after I'd been there, all I did was get a chance to go in there, check in. That takes a long time to do all that. Mm -hmm. And the next day, we do the standard things. You're going to groups, and all these people are, are walking around with their chests puffed out, trying to be the big man or the big, the big deal in there, because that's what people do who right. are, you know, now we don't even have the alcohol or drugs to fall back on. So, right. so the, you know, the escalation of character defects is almost instantaneous in that instance. But we did go through something, and I saw that. And that night, an AA meeting came in. I had no idea about AA. AA, well, to me, was that, you know, as, as the old cliche of people who couldn't handle it. They're in the Bowery. They're doing whatever, and they're just shaking and, and drinking coffee, and, and that's yeah. it. That's under, I, under the bridge kind of drunks. It wasn't exactly. for, you know, upscale working guy like me. Ex yeah, exactly. That's why, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I have a good job. I'm, you know, I was full of me at the time. When they came in, the thing that I noticed and the thing that they said was, you know, we're just here. I was wondering who's paying these guys to come in. And I found out very quickly that they were there as volunteers. And some of them would say the amount of time they had. And I was thinking, like, those poor suckers, you know, they got like 10, 15 years and they still have to do this, you know. Wow. It was like that whole kind of I felt bad for them 
still. Wow. That's that's wild. That, that, that the mindset is they're coming in to help you, and you're and you feel bad for them. Right. It's like, oh, you don't you don't get to drink anymore. That's too bad. I know. Yeah. And so they said to me, "How long you been in?" I said, "Oh, I've been in here since uh, yesterday. I haven't had a drink in like maybe thirty hours or whatever like that." Yeah. And the guy said, "Well, when's the last time you actually went twenty four hours without a drink?" Because I was feeling really down, and I think they could see that. And it was like I had to count in decades. <laughs> So it was like, oh, and they said, so congratulations, because all any of us have is today. Mm -hmm. And I said, hmm. And they said, and that's how we get through these things, you know, is we realize we live for today. And, you know, if you spend 24 hours, congratulations, you're no different than any of us. And I like that because I took that failure and the discomfort I had with myself and kind of turned it into a positive attribute. You know, that I had gone 24 hours. And that feeling continued to escalate as I went through the several days after that. And I was continuously bombarded with AA coming in. So when we, um, you know, the the one thing that I will recall above and beyond anything else was now I'm cocky because now I got 24, 48 hours under my belt. You know, I can walk around, you know. And and, uh, it was Super Bowl Sunday, 1996. And uh, Dallas was playing Pittsburgh, I think. I'm not quite sure that I know Dallas was playing because a guy brought in a meeting at seven o'clock. The game is on and we're all like grumbling because we can't watch the football game, the Super Bowl. They're keeping us from watching the Super Bowl. And this guy came in to bring in a meeting and he was wearing a Dallas Cowboys jacket. And I like was my brain couldn't wrap around the fact that here's a Dallas Cowboys fan and he's here instead of sitting somewhere watching the game. And I think that before he even said anything, meant more to me than anything about the power of the program. Mm -hmm. That this man was coming there, and he brought in a step two meeting, which I think was also good, you know, because it helped put me in my place. You know, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Because it made me realize a couple of different things, because I wasn't really familiar with that. I had, I was all over step one. I wanted to go right to step 12, you know. But step two was one that was a powerful step for me, and it continues to be, that this power greater than myself could be anything. I said, well, you know, I don't know if I want to deal with God. And he says, well, for you, I'm not really even talking about God. I'm talking about anybody that is trying to get well, trying to get sober, is a power greater than you. If you go into an AA meeting, you'll find that, that you'll be surrounded by people who will be able to help you. Yeah. And so that was very powerful to me, you know, and he, it, it helped me to get over something that I think a lot of people suffer through when they first get into the program and hear that because they think that it's, you know, it's automatically God. And right then, it, power greater than me was anybody but me. Yeah, <laughs> so, greater than me. You yeah. know, anybody but me. And so that really was a powerful thing. So mm-hmm. that was my little bit of a synopsis of, of my time of going into and dealing with this and then getting through those several days within detox. Right, right. Now, just to just to fill in a little background information, you said you were married. So, mm-hmm. and so how and how old were you at this time? I was forty two when I got sober. So you're forty two, and you're married for how many years? At uh, that point? I was married for. Oh, you're putting me to the test. I got married in nineteen eighty four. So okay. So I was married for twelve years. Twelve years, and you see, you had two girls. Two now? girls, and when I got sober, my older daughter was nine, and my younger one was just turned five. Okay, gotcha. So they're aware that. You know, daddy's uh, behaving a certain way, and then he's going away for a little while, and and some things are changing around the house, yes? Yes, and what I think was great was the treatment facility I was in had a family day, uh-huh. and where it was to bring the kids and the spouse in, 
into his big amphitheater and basically talk about this. And they talked about how this is a disease. Don't be so hard on the individual who's here because they're probably doing something that could change their life and, and make them the person, if they work hard enough, to make them the person they were meant to be, mm-hmm. not the person that be, they became because of the disease. And that, I think, was very telling on my kids because they both kind of heard that and they were like, oh, okay, daddy's going to be good now. Yeah. You know, kind of like that kind of thing. And it helped me, too, because I saw the value of them being able to accept that. And mm-hmm. I think early on, accepting is a very difficult thing for any of us to do as we get into the program because of the wrongs we had done. And we tend to dwell on that, you know, rather than learn from them. And I think that was a great thing. So things were put in front of me a lot that helped me get over hurdles that I was about to encounter, but never had to. And maybe we'll get into that kind of thing and how, through retrospect, I was able to look back on that and get a more clarity as to this whole higher power thing that that occurred. Right. Yeah, because I think about when I was first in and I'd say I'm, I mean, I was 21. I was young and mm-hmm. I was in college, but I'm trying to, I'm in an event where drinking is happening and it's normal at that time frame in my life. And I have to try to explain to someone why I'm not drinking. And the reality is I really don't know why I'm not drinking as far as the full gamut of alcoholism. And I mean, I'm explaining that I'm trying to be sober, but in your case, you have a family where you also may not know how to explain to the family and how nice it is that that was put in place. So you you didn't have to explain something that maybe you didn't even understand yourself. Right, exactly. And, and they said it's going to be, you know, a long road ahead. Uh, and, and that includes a lot of daddy not being around at night because he has to go to meetings. Right. Because one of the things that they support, it supported then and support now, is that really this whole idea of, of really filling as much of every day uh, in your first 90 days with, with meetings, because when you go in there, I mean, I had spent 30 years of, and, and, and the last 10 or 15 years of, of having alcohol be the number one thought in my head at all times. Yeah. And, and that from the, day, from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, it was the, how am I going to get it? How much am I going to get? Where am I going to hide it? How am I going to do it so nobody sees it? And so this takes a lot of brain power every day, you know, to do that almost Pavlovian in a way, because there's many times I can remember when I started to even think about the alcohol, that I would literally salivate. Yep. And, and yep. that is something that is a Pavlovian response to a stimuli. And what happened is, okay, just because I put down a drink and I went to carrier for a week, doesn't mean that that isn't still in, in my head. You know, somebody could ring the bell and guess what? I'm, yep. I'm off to the races. So the idea of, of, almost supplementing that kind of where am I getting a drink? What am I doing with that? With a what meet am I going to? What time of the day is it? How am I going to get there? Is there anybody you have to bring there? Because the guy that I told you had helped me get into carry, he became my temporary sponsor. And for the first three months, I really didn't understand that these were suggestions Uh because this guy had almost like a drill sergeant kind of way of dealing with things. So he says, you're going to do this, you're going to do that, and you're going to do the other thing, which was fine for me at the time because I really needed to. And and I think that the fact, the proximity of his place to to my house, which was right across literally 50 yards away, was awesome because I said to my wife, you know, well, maybe you want to go to, you know, they have a program there called Al-Anon. You might want to go to that. She goes, no, whenever I want to know anything about it, I'm going to talk to John. 
So that uh-huh. was pretty good. So it kept me on my toes even more, you know. And again, that's one of those things that was not, in my opinion, a coincidence. I think it was there that he was there to help not just me, but to help my wife as well try and get through this. Because I'm sure, and she would talk to him about, you know, he's gone every night of the week or whatever. But I did um, find that the best thing about doing as many meetings as I did was I was able to focus on that rather than the drinking. And, and that helped filled, fill my head. And uh, he told me, learn a serenity prayer, do this, do that. And that also just filled the void in my head so that I wasn't thinking about or obsessing over alcohol. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now let's go a little bit further. And so now you're in the program for a while and you are starting to perhaps take the suggestions that, that uh, <laughs> is it John, is it? Is that, yeah, yeah. That John is... Uh, so we say, um, asking you to do, and you know, you get to the step work, and you know, about how long are you sober at this point? Where you just start to take the step work seriously? Would you say? Well, I, I can say it's probably a two-step process of okay. a twelve-step program, and my home group, which I established on the second day I was out of carrier, was a step meeting in Hillsborough. And so that stayed my home group for 18, 19 years. Okay. So being familiar, becoming familiar with the steps, I think, was the biggest turning point for me in this because I wasn't looking at it from the perspective of, here's step one. I see that in there. But what was happening, it was part of a bigger picture as to why are we doing Because I was that kind of guy. You know, I wanted to know why. What, why am I doing this? Why do I have to accept a God of my understanding before I can go further? Why this and why that? And it's kind of spelled out in the steps. So okay. being able to participate in step meetings early on, especially beginner step meetings, when you're in there and you don't want to, sometimes you have a tendency of not wanting to sound stupid. <laughs> like I still have that. But when you're in those beginner step meetings around people who are also very new to the program and you can ask any question you want and, and not feel like you're, you're making an ass of yourself. Sure. You know? So that was important to me. So for me, just me, the process of going through the steps, I think, was encumbered a bit by my the, the downfall of going through all the steps in a step meeting was in step 12, it says, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, right? So it was like, I don't know if maybe my brain was overcoming, still still in control of my heart. And so I didn't really understand it. So I got through the first three steps. And then I, uh, like so many people, wasn't sure that I was capable of, of understanding all the different things that I had done as r- wrongs. And, you know, and I wanted to make sure I was doing it the right way. So I kind of took a while to get to step four, and then I took a while to do the rest of the steps. There's no right way. There's no wrong way. I'm, I'm very involved with recovery programs, not just in New Jersey, but in Florida, in uh, the east coast, uh, southeast coast of Florida, in the West Palm down to uh, Fort Lauderdale. And one of the things I see there is this, this need, because of the amount of people coming in, of trying to get people to do their steps in three months, you know, in the first 90 days. And then they're like sponsoring people on day 91. I gotcha. But okay. that's the kind of nature of the beast down there. Up here, I think it's a little more forgiving. And uh, one of the things that helped me understand that I wasn't doing it the wrong way because I was kind of, you know, taking my time doing the steps. I met a guy in uh, Piscataway named Slowly. And he would always introduce himself that way. I'm a slowly recovering alcoholic. And I had a lot of discussions with him about, he says, if it doesn't mean anything to you, if you do it, 
how do you expect it to change you? Yeah. Well, okay, well, that, that kind of makes sense. So it gave me a validity to that I wasn't just procrastinating, but I was trying to wait. And I think some of it also came, I was waiting for that white light moment, you know, that, that, sure. that spiritual awakening that I always thought about. And it's, um, it wasn't that. It was something else for me. It was almost like the realization, and I hate to do this, but I'm, I'm a big analogy guy. The Grinch, right? It's this, okay. the show that was just on a thousand times before Christmas was, it was this person who was cynical and everything, couldn't buy into Christmas and everything like that. And then through these different things, and even when all was taken away and all they had was each other in, the, in Whoville, and they were hand in hand, he's up at the top of the mountain there, and he basically sees it's not about that. Uh-huh. What it is, is it's something inside us that we have to understand. If we look hard enough, we can find it. And so, you know, he, he found it that way. And I think that that's, for me, a very telling kind of aspect of how I started to turn my life around in a spiritual way, which then enabled me to go through the steps with a clear understanding of what I was driving at. It wasn't for me, but it was for me. Uh You know, the whole amends was a process that I had to go through because I needed to get my side of the street clean. And I think people needed to hear me say the things that I needed to say. And only after a a specific amount of time for me in the program was I capable of saying something other than, I'm sorry, you know? And I think that was important. What am I owning up to? And have that living amends kind of thing in the background. I'm working. I'm doing the things I need to do. I'm doing all this stuff. So I have some justification because I was a liar. I lied all the time. I promised, made promises every day what is in there. And that always haunted me. You know, I didn't want to make those same promises and fall back into bad habits. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. so as you're finishing up this, this first fourth step that you're doing and you're going into that fifth step, can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about how you felt in that first experience versus – Perhaps what it feels like now, if you, you if you've done another inventory and revealing that once again, can you compare and contrast those times? I I can to a degree, but like I said, I had taken my time to get to that point. So I think when I did my fourth and fifth step, I was in a position to really understand what it was I was trying to drive at. Okay. And in step four, when I was doing it, and you know, you get to the fourth column and all that, and you kind of look at that. I saw that, you know, my basic understanding was like everything led to fear. Uh-huh. You okay. know, and so I understood that that was the thing that I needed to work work on the most. And fear for me came from low self esteem, in in my opinion, uh-huh. just because I I just never was good enough. You know, I was always I was the the little brother. I was the whatever. I wasn't quite as I was the little guy in school. I'm not a I'm not a towering giant, as you well know. I'm yeah. only about five five. So those kind of things, I thought, diminished me as a person because of the smallness of my frame and, and certain things like that. But when I started to go through the program, I started to feel better in myself because it wasn't about that. It was about what I am inside, not that. I was able to go through the fourth step and the fifth step fairly fluidly, okay. I'll say, because I had taken enough time to be able to do that. And I think I was fairly thorough because as it goes now, if I was to do another fourth and fifth step, I don't think I could add too many things because Mm -hmm. it all revolved around that. So my focus, though, over the years was to make sure that fear doesn't drive me and because we can all get fearful. And I think that helped me not just in my relationships at home and with my family, but in my job especially, that I was willing to take a stand 
even if I was not in the majority. Okay. And I think that's a point in our time, in our lives, that we realize that maybe we are getting better because we have the ability to look at things more objectively through these different prisms that we learn while we're in the program and be able to address them in what we think is a great manner. And being in the program, of course, allows us to kind of bounce things off people in a program that we, that we think would be able to give us valid advice or, yep. or a, objective opinion. You being one of those people, I would always go to that if I needed something to get a better understanding of is somebody that not only just has time in the program, but understands what that time means from a perspective of advancement in our recovery yeah. and the evolution of change. So. Yeah. The, I mean, there's part of this that's wisdom. It's not intelligence, that it's learned yeah. over time and you can't learn it until you get the time and you get the experience. It's just, you can't, you know, I can't catapult myself into knowing something without having an experience. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What I'd like you to talk about next is the amends process mm-hmm. and you know, where it started and maybe your first couple or maybe some couple that are really memorable that worked or maybe one that didn't work. Some, you know, again, the audience can you know, lock into because they're having an experience with this as well. Can you, sure. Yeah. Well, the, you know, my sponsor, John, at the time was very big on living amends. Right. He said, let your actions speak. Because words can be very duplicitous unless you're following or, or, or actually the words come after the actions. Uh-huh. So it was very important for me to show the actions that I needed all through. So I became not obsessed, I won't say that, but very driven to make sure that before I made any amends to anybody that I had the the background now to be able to do it in a manner that people could put two and two together, you know, because words are hollow in many instances, unless they can be backed up by action. So what I did was, you know, just tried nose to the grindstone at work, literally, because I I owed a lot to my job. They could have gotten rid of me several times, and they didn't. The people that I worked with knew what I was, and saw me now change into somebody else, somebody who was driven by obsessive desire for my own advancements, say. Okay. Uh, which I was, because I, I, I wouldn't do anything. I'd just say all the great things I did to somebody who was, had become and understood the meaning of the word humility and was able to willing and willing to do whatever it took to make something happen. I'm, I was in a project kind of field okay. and really trying to make sure that rather than telling people what to do, I encourage people to join me and help me understand what to do. By doing that, I, hel- I think it helped me along in a lot of other ways. For me at home, I lived in a condo in uh, Hillsborough, two bedrooms. So I had two kids now, one nine and almost 10 and one five or six who were in a single room, in bunk beds. That had been okay to me when I was drinking. But this is a very small condo and everything. And my daughter, my older daughter, would be like, you know, know, do you want to have your friends over? Well, you know, I don't really. I want to go over there because they have their own room and stuff Mm. like that. And I started to realize that all the words in the world weren't going to change that. So I really not only worked hard, I worked hard and tried to save the money that I always squandered on, on booze, and tried to really put something together. Okay. My goal being, and I think setting goals was a very important thing to me in this amends process. Mm-hmm. I said, I'd gone through my 90 days. It was April, whenever, uh, when I was done with that. I said, in a year, I want to be in a new home. Okay. I want to be in a home that would be able to 
support my family, my forever home, I guess you might want to call it. And my wife said, that's kind of a, a lofty goal. And I said, well, not really, because, you know, we were looking throughout the area. And I said, there's some areas that are cheaper than others, sure. you know. But I didn't want to settle. So in a year, I, I did. I, I, we're sitting at a, my, we're sitting right outside my house right now, right in, in the house next door. And I, we bought that house a year later. I think it was a, was a stretch goal, but it helped me prove without having to say the words that I was making amends in these regards. So the men's process then became almost like an, a very kind of like, this is, and I know that you're thinking, you know, maybe, maybe some of the listeners are thinking, well, this is kind of material, but it wasn't. I wasn't buying a house to have a big house. I was buying a house to give my children what I couldn't give them before. Right. And that with a yard in the back, my daughter was getting into softball mm -hmm. and, you know, have that room in the back where we could play catch. And having all of that, I mean, that, that jerks at the heartstrings all the time. Yeah. And so when I would be able to say to them, rather than say, I'm so sorry for those years that I wasn't there and all this, because kids, they don't understand anyway. I said, do you like this? And they're like, this is the best thing that has ever happened to us. And they meant it. Tears in the eyes kind of stuff. Yeah. Like, thank you. And my wife was very appreciative of that. Did I make a formal amends to my wife? I think throughout my process I did, but I can say that it was a struggle for me to put into words because, again, I had been the master manipulator. I mean, when I go back in time, I can say I did some very, very treacherous things in regards to mental health. You know, she tried to get me help. Mm -hmm. back in the late 80s. And, and instead of me being exposed as the alcoholic who needed to do that, I was trying to turn it around on her. And for stuff like that to happen, I mean, that's pretty, pretty nasty stuff. So I became very open, honest. I didn't, I didn't do anything. I mean, I've never done anything since, well, even before being sober or, or after that would, would ever be of, of, of mistrust in, in any mm -hmm. relationship kind mm -hmm. of way. But I think afterwards, it was very important for me to do that. At work, I mean, the people coming to me saying, my God, what the hell happened to you? Literally. My boss came to me when he gave me my next review. He had, he had his review from the year before, which was Drunken Den, to the review here. And he said, my God, what happened to you? He said, it's a miracle. Yeah. And I realized, and that's one of those goosebump moments when you say, oh, my God, it is. It was a miracle. And that's one moment in time that I can say helped me then understand that amends can't just be words. Amends have to be actions first and let the words be secondary to the point where it doesn't even need to be said. There's two ways that you can work with amends, in my opinion. You can go to somebody and say, listen, I'm really sorry about everything. And people will put up their hands and say, no, you, you don't have to apologize. I'm just happy you're there. Mm -hmm. And there's another way you can say, listen, I'm trying to do the best I can to give you what I could not give you when I was stuck in the throes of this disease. And you see tears in people's eyes. Yeah. That is what amends are all about. To see that you've made a, a really big change in your life for the better. And uh, at that moment in time, I look back, it was almost like those flashbacks you see in TV. When somebody, that jigsaw puzzle piece fits into place, and all of a sudden it's bing, 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 all the way back. 
And I realized, how did John ever end up being my neighbor when the guy that was there before was my biggest enabler because he was working all the time and I could keep my booze over in his house because he needed to have his dog walked when he couldn't get home on time. So all these little things there. He moves, this guy moves in, right? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I always look back on and say, how did that happen? You know, how could it be that that ends up being my sponsor? How can these things happen? And I realize it's just, and I don't want to get into all the spiritual aspect of it, but to me, there was a design there, a plan, yeah. that I all I had to do was continue to go down where I was going and it would get there. So the amends process for me, like I said, might be a little bit different than what you've heard in many instances, but it was more action than it was words. But the actions became words when I was done. And those people that I really needed to make amends to were, were very small. My parents... They loved the fact that I was doing what I was doing. They came up and saw sure. my house, you know, and they said, I can't believe what you're doing. And I said, I, I just want to, and I did say, you know, I'm, to my mother, I said, I'm really sorry. I went to Woodstock without you knowing about it. She was like, Jesus. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. Yeah. That's, that's I, a true story. <laughs> yeah. Well, I really, I really like your, the way you're describing it more as a demonstration yeah. of the change rather than telling the story of a change. And over time, even our book says that you know people will appreciate more a, a demonstration of our change in character rather than our words and you know, all the things that we, we do that we say. And, and I got sober in Illinois, which is pretty close to Missouri, which is the show me state. And we used to have a little expression, you know, don't, don't tell me, show me. Yeah, you know, and that, that's nice that you you feel bad, but I, it doesn't look like it yet. And even even when you said your boss. You know, that's that's the other piece that he knew you for this, you know, great length of time as one character. And in his mind, he knew that this probably wasn't going to change. And so when it did, it really is like, well, wait, wait, wait. I already wrote your story. I wrote the end of your story for you. I don't know what, what and, and for you to, in a way, manipulate him to a new story of who, who, who Dennis is and yeah. perhaps help him realize people are capable of changing. Because he may not have thought you were. Yeah. So. yeah just a, a brief kind of addendum to that mm-hmm. is that man, who I have a lot of respect for as a boss and everything like that, he also was a heavy drinker, but he wouldn't let on. Uh, about six or seven years ago, I went to a golf outing and he happened to be there. And he said, I was going to call you. And I'm like, what? He said, you know, I've been, I've been sober now for like a year and a half. He had a really tragic thing happen in his house and stuff like that. And okay. it was all as a result of him, him being so drunk and falling on house, burning down, all that kind of stuff. And he's, he, he referred back to that moment in time. He said, you know, I thought back to that change I saw in you. And even though he was in his early 60s at the time, he said, I, w- I thought that maybe it could happen to me too. Wow. And the great thing is, he said, and it did. Yeah. And that, that, to me, meant more than anything because we don't realize how many people are watching us. Not judging, but watching. Yep. We yeah. become an example. And I think that when we talk about practicing these principles in all our affairs, we have to understand we can't turn it on and turn it off. We can't be one person in meetings providing service for whatever way that we're trying to do that. We need to live this life in 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 this manner all the time. Like we're constantly on video surveillance yeah. 
I think, and I think that's a good analogy to make too, that if we always think the camera's on, then we have a tendency to be the better example. Yeah. Because what we become is an example for people who maybe will never admit to us that they're having issues. Right. But if they see what we're doing, and it's not like we're carrying it and doing these things. The things I would do would be the things that people don't want to do. You know, even on my project team, if something needs to be slopped out, I would go and slop it out myself. Mm-hmm. You know, why should, why should I think somebody else should have to do that? I'd be, I have to be willing to do whatever is necessary. And as we get further into the discussion here, I want to touch on that a little bit as to how important that became for my daughters. Okay. Yeah, the, the, you reminded me of an expression that we say around here that the only copy of, I may be the only copy of a big book that someone ever sees. Exactly. Walking around. And wouldn't it be a shame if they saw me do something, you know, really lousy or out of character, and then they found out, and they're like, oh, so that's what that's what Alcoholics Anonymous is about? Like, well, I, I don't want them to get that message. And yeah. when we change our life, we change lives. It's not just ours. And the influence that we have, not, not necessarily power, but really I, I believe the influence that we have is a responsibility. And we have to take it seriously. Yeah, and I coin a phrase a lot of times when people talk about this, and I always say, you know, the thing that I found out the most in my recovery program and throughout my recovery was the less I say, the smarter I sound. <laughs> right. And, and that's the truth. I've had people be attracted to my recovery, not because of anything that I ever said, but because they see the actions that I take. And I'm not, again, trying to point that out. It's not like I'm doing anything like standing up in front of the thing, doing a dance or something like that. But I'm, I'm setting up tables. I'm taking down tables. Yeah. I'm cleaning a coffee pot or whatever the case may be. Whatever is needed to be done, I don't want to make it seem like I have more time than you. So you should clean that. And mm. I'll stand over here. And I unfortunately see that enough that it's noticeable to me. So I want to try to be the opposite of that whenever I can to make sure that it doesn't matter. And I have attracted one of my sponsees I have now uh, asked me to be his sponsor, not because of anything I said in the meeting, but because I used to help him fold tables at the end of the meeting and put them back. Yeah. And so when you realize what little things we can do that can help influence and maybe change a person's life for the better – it's amazing when yeah. you think about that. It, you know, it's it's almost like you shake your head laughing thinking about that. Yeah, I, I had a I took a coffee commitment when I was probably about 10, 11, 12 years sober because I needed it. And, yeah. And it was a time in my life where I needed some refocus and so back to some basics, right? And when I did that, I realized there was a lot of people, they would come in and they would say, oh, the coffee's not ready. The coffee's not ready. And I would get irritated, of course, and think to myself, well, it's not ready because you didn't get here to make it. You know, and, and, I, and I could have said some snappy remark, and but I just kept it to myself and I made coffee. What that taught me is, I mean, I, w- I would try to be polite and I would say, it, it, it's coming, it's coming. But later on when I, I wasn't doing that anymore, and then I saw somebody else you know, doing the coffee and you could tell they were stressed because it was getting close to me and they were worried that it wasn't going to be ready. Someone was going to come in and say, where's my coffee? So when I see a guy like that or, or a lady like that, I said, I walk over, I said, do you need any help? And there was one time I did that. And this guy looks at me like I'm, like I'm speaking Russian. He said, I, I've been doing this for 12 weeks. And you're the first person that asked, 
if I could help. Yeah. And I said, really? He said, yeah. And, and it's just one of those things where it, it changed. Like, he's like, thank you. And, and he said, I'm doing okay. Cause he said, it would take me longer to explain it to you than, but just thank you for asking instead of demanding. Yeah. And, but it took me time again, years to get to this point where maybe I should be curious instead of angry. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. And, yeah. And it takes a while. So yeah, it does. Okay. So you talked about the 12th step and practicing these principles in all your affairs. And I know part of the preparation for the show, you had talked about some of the things with your daughters and yes. now they're getting older and they're teens and, and you're starting to discover some things about them that you didn't know when they were nine and five. And I would like you to talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it, it's a it's a it's it's a big part of my story yeah. only because of the fact that here I am sober for 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 quite a while, and what happened was my my older daughter got very involved with sports and with with softball and with all these different things, and you know I don't want to again sound like I have this like I'm this pillar of AA all through my my career because I wasn't. But practicing these principles in all our affairs has been a pillar of strength for me. I became very involved with the Hillsborough Recreation softball program mm -hmm. because I saw some times where kids weren't being treated right. It's a recreation program. Recreation means fun. Right. And I saw some of the parents in, in some of the levels that I was getting into with, with my daughter at the age brackets. And they're basically playing fantasy baseball. With, with kids. So they're getting these kids on a team. This is like back in the 80s when you used to hear about the East Germans. You'd have like two or three teams that were like, these kids were like, could almost go like the Harlem Globetrotters of, of baseball. <laughs> and they're playing with these kids that are looking up at the butterflies that flies by while they're throwing windmill pitches past them and hitting them in the head. You know, right. it's like, no, no, we got to change that. So what I did was I tried to take what I learned in the program and apply it there. So I became a league coordinator mm -hmm. and I started to change things. You know, you can't sit to kids two innings in a row. Mm -hmm. You need okay. to do a grading system of the kids. The managers had to be honest because we're checking. Santa Claus checking, you know, checking your list and making sure that you categorize kids. You know, mm -hmm. like the highly proficient, the average and, and people that you don't want to throw 50 mile an hour pitches passed. And, and by doing that, we were able to draft and do this and get people to bed, have teams. Every parent, every coach hated me because yeah. of the fact that I was trying to make it fair. You get the people, well, you're going to give the trophy to the kid that lost and everything. I'm like, listen, 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 this is a rec program. There is no criteria. Anyone can join and participate. Yeah. And they need to be able to participate where there's not the good and the bad. There is just people trying to have fun. The fun was these kids were looking forward to the snack after the game more yeah. than they were there. Yeah. And so there was a lot of opportunity for me to really work hard at making sure, why are we doing this? What is this program for? And it was for that, right? So that, to me, took the place. And, and because I was so involved with that, I never, like, stopped going to AA meetings, but there was about three or four years there in between meetings for me. Okay. And, right. and I want to get that out there because I think it's two things. I always get concerned when I know people aren't going to meetings and stuff like that. And, but by filling what I did there, I was able to demonstrate what I had learned in the program in another uh, venue. 
the danger with that was as my daughters decided, we don't want to play softball anymore. We want to have fun. And, and you, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. So in, in, in the later part of high school, I started running into a lot of problems with my older daughter mm-hmm. in regards to the fact that she was introduced to a drug culture and, and, and ended up getting very involved and, and, and became addicted Okay. Uh, to certain things. And uh, I found out the hard way that the best thing that I could do then was rather than say anything to her, because parents and kids, you know, and a parent in the program, yeah, I know, you know everything. It's like that saying now, okay, boomer. It was like, okay, dad, you know, it's the right. same thing. So what I did was I made sure that I got back to meetings and I started going to more and more meetings. And that helped me. It helped me better understand the fact that there were certain things I couldn't change. Mm-hmm. By her seeing me, what I was doing, uh, it got to the point where she was bringing drugs home and, and you okay. know, and, and, and it just couldn't have it in the house anymore. So I talked to people in the program and they said, boot her out. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like, oh, well, I don't know if I want no. to. OK, well, how long do you want to stra- drag this out? And I did then the hardest thing that I've ever done in my life, which was tell my daughter to get out of my house. And obviously there was it was not a good night no. that that happened. But I did leave her with something when she left. And this is after, a couple, this wasn't like overnight. I'm, I'm synopsis. It's a synopsis of sure, a I couple guess. of years of torture for everybody and what it was. And my wife included. She didn't, you know, I mean, it was, it was very hard. And, and it really rips at the family fabric. It mm-hmm. really does. And, but by doing that, she said, okay, I'm going to take a tent from downstairs and I'm going to go live under a bridge in New Brunswick. Okay. Okay. Well, fine. So, um. When she was leaving, somebody was coming to pick her up, and I said, oh, by the way, if you want to find another way of doing it, I think that you'd be a great candidate to go into rehab. And she gave me some hand gestures and things of that nature and, <laughs> and took off. Um, <laughs> she, she commented on your, 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 your uh, yeah, uh, yeah, candidacy yeah. Uh, yeah, thought. Yeah. Yeah. So lo and behold, about four or five days later, I get a call mm-hmm. from my daughter. And it's, uh, tell me more about this rehab thing. Yeah. And uh, so over the course of the next few days, I was able to convince her through some of her friends who saw how far down the path she had gone, because I realized in this program, I'm still the enemy as a parent, yep. especially a parent. And, and w- w- long story short, we were able to get her into a, a rehab. And, and that day, the, it, it, it's sometimes the most incredible thing. When I brought her down there, I actually had to grab her to keep her from jumping out of the car on the turnpike in near Woodbridge because we got into a thing. And you know what? I, I can again say that in my head, I'm driving and we're stopped at a thing. And in my head, I heard grab her. Yeah. And I grabbed her like this and her hand was on the handle. And she said, how did you know? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. Right. I don't know. And she was like, okay. And I took her down and it was down Seabrook house in, in South Jersey. And she went there. And I've spoken to her, and she said, it's okay to talk about this. And, and she went in there. And that day, when I got her, she was the most obnoxious person in the world. I don't want beer. I don't want this. I don't want that. And the day progressed. And the people there, they know how to do their stuff. You know, Cedar really House do. and Carrier yeah. and, and a lot of other institutes, they, they are great. They drag out this process to the point where my daughter hadn't eaten in a very long time. And then they're making the dinner 
for there. And she and he's like, yeah, you can go in and take a look at that. And she came out and she was like, they have pork chops. And, they, <laughs> and here's a kid that had lost literally 10 pounds over the, you know, over the five or six days that yeah. she'd been away because she hadn't really eaten. So by the time she we got her to go in, uh, she was like happy to go in. So that was a that was a great thing to have happen because she went and she did all the things grudgingly. Of, uh, that she had to work, you know, after several weeks, they said, we got to get her out of here. They shipped her down to Florida and they said, oh, we paid the ticket. And yeah, we took she went care down of. to Florida and, and began grudgingly into a sober living facility and all that kind of stuff. And I think sometimes it means, when I'm saying this and grudgingly and everything like that, I was getting calls every day, like, you've got to do something about your daughter kind of stuff. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You're the ones down there. You, you have control. You're the professionals, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what am I? But the point was that she got exactly what she needed. Yeah. She needed to be, when, when you think about it, she needed to get all that out of her. Yeah. And, and then she was introduced to some people down there that she aligned with. And this was early in her recovery, months, just months into her recovery. How, I just want to break in. How, how old was she? She was 20 when, I think 20 when she, when she went down there. But she got involved with these people. And it was a great network of people. And it got to the point that uh, in 2010, we ended up buying a condo down there. Mm-hmm. And that's how I got down to Florida and, and why I'm in Florida a lot. And so she aligned with these people. These people right now, I can tell you right now, they're the best people in the world. They, three of them, very close friends now of mine as well, they started a treatment center in Maryland, the Maryland Addiction Recovery Center. And it's considered one of the most prestigious programs on the East Coast because of the fact that these people have been there and done that, and they bring to the table offerings that I think are just unique and wonderful. So much so that Karen Renaissance, Karen Treatment Centers, which is probably one of the most known uh, programs in in the East Coast, have now combined with them, and and they're doing things of that nature, and that's great. And, uh, and, And to see that happen, and to see how this program works from from afar and watching what she did. I mean, she was down in Florida until they moved up to like here and they moved up there and then they moved over here. So it was a a success story from day one, Mm -hmm. which leads to my other daughter. Now, I was a, (laughs) when I was early in recovery, I used to say, when I go out and speak, I'm a first time winner. And I didn't realize how stupid I must've sounded because, you know, I was 42 when I got sober. Yeah, I didn't even try any time before that to ever get sober. Right. Why an idiot? You know, really? So, and I felt so guilty after that. I still feel guilty about that, you know, to be honest with you, because all I know is so far, I've been able to maintain my sobriety by trying to do everything I possibly can because I know how precious it really is. But my daughter, my older daughter, ended up getting it the first time and still to this day, 12 years later, and she just blessed us with a granddaughter a month ago. And she's married to a, a wonderful guy uh, who also is in a treatment level, you know, executive director for a treatment center. And, and that, I think, is also great because this is like I've been there, I've done that. And I think that's an important part for what I do as well with trying to bring meetings into treatment centers. But um, my younger daughter suffered through a lot of stuff, starting at an early age. We noticed some things, obsessive, compulsive, things of this nature, broader, mm-hmm. bipolar, some other stuff. And I think it was a lesson learned for me because one of the things that she had was, and I think it's a big, big problem, a big, big issue with, with younger women especially, but now men as well, an eating disorder. Uh-huh. And this eating disorder was something that I couldn't comprehend. 
And I think that was God coming to me, my, my, my higher power, who I choose to call God in this moment, <laughs> is, is, is making me learn things too. Yeah. Because I always said the non-alcoholics, they just don't get us. You know, right. it was almost like a they don't get us, you know, and all that kind of stuff that we think about. Well, let me tell you, I didn't get eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And I had to learn because it was, it's, a, it's a deadly disorder. Right. And, and, the, and the, for that, there's no other way to learn but the hard way. Yeah. There's, just, there's no easy way into that. No. So we, I got involved <clears throat> when trying to get her treatment, obviously. And she's also an alcoholic and an addict. So the big problem there is most, most treatment centers for, for drug and alcohol don't treat eating disorder. And eating disorder facilities don't treat alcoholism. So what we went into is a several year, I call it whack-a-mole therapy, Uh because we would knock down the one, the other one rear its ugly head. And all the meantime, I I was introduced to so many people who suffer from eating disorders uh, at, at some of the facilities that she went to. And I'm very compassionate and very much aware of, of what this can do to families so, you know, I know that our listeners are more in this, but we, we run the gamut here, I think, in yeah. trying to make sure that people understand that this is another thing where if you don't understand it, you need to find out more about it. The, the areas where they have treatment for that, Somerset yeah. Medical in Philadelphia is the Renfrew facility. In Florida, the biggest success I had for my daughter, my ba- daughter's biggest success was that her dad would never stop looking around for some kind of treatment that would be 12-step and eating disorder. Like, does that even exist? So after several go-rounds, we did find a place called Milestones in Recovery in South Florida. And my daughter went in there. But, you know, this carousel of, of, of treatment yeah. that a lot of people get into, once they go in and they start not being successful in, in treatment and they, they go through relapse and sometimes it becomes this, this merry-go-round of, of get sober for a little while, do this, do that, and boom, back in, back yeah. in, back in. How do we stop that? And sometimes it's, you got to change everything, you know, obviously. But so when she went to this place, she wasn't successful the first time, but a series of unfortunate things that occurred when she did relapse helped her to better understand the importance of trying to get in there. Just as today, there's so much issue with, with, with drugs, you know, and, and the the potency of the drugs causing, Mm -hmm. you know, death. And that's very near and dear to me at the moment too. But one of the things that she did mention so that we can carry on with other things is, you know, now she's five and a half years sober. Yep. She started going for treatments, you know, like being in treatment facilities at like 15 years old. Mm-hmm. But, you know, certain things that she did that, that I would always say is as hard as this was for her, all the school that she missed and everything, she got her degree. She yeah. got her degree from Hillsborough High School. And to me, that says a lot about the character of the individual, about how hard she strived for that. And I said to her, you know, on many occasions, be proud of that. Yeah. I never tried to say anything more than that, but be proud of the accomplishments you have been able to, to make, even in the throes of this, because it's a very difficult thing. Yeah. And one of the things she said to me, she said, one of the things that really hurt me the most was I felt lesser than because you and Kelly both got it the first time uh-huh. and I didn't. And again, another lesson learned. Does that make her recovery any less important than my recovery? Right. I'll tell you, I, I, my eyes were opened 
in so many ways by going through this. I have the best of relationships now with both of my daughters. They're the most wonderful people on the face of the earth Mm -hmm. because I know where they've been. I know where they are now, and I know how much they had to do to get there. Right, the work it took, yeah. And they, one of the nicest things that ever happened was on my 15th anniversary, I was in Florida, and they were both there. And I'm pulling out a card out of this, but, you know, those things that, that uh, are important to us. It says, happy 15th anniversary uh-huh. from the two of them. And they gave me a, a special coin and a card that just was, you know, 15 years Happy anniversary. Love you very much, Kelly and Kayla. But when they gave me this, my older daughter got up there and she said, you know what, Dad? Thanks for being an example of what we can be and not being somebody who just told us what they thought we should be doing. That meant a lot to me because that's what we're here for. And there was one other thing while they were going through all of this. I got very frustrated because I couldn't fix them. And I started to really suffer from that. When I did, I found out one thing, and I don't know how exactly it happened, but I will tell you this. Somehow, again, this in my head kind of thing, and, and, and again, I'm not trying to say that I know and somebody's speaking to me, but I think there's parts of my mind that can speak to other parts of my mind without me knowing about it. Yeah. But as hard as this was, all I had was this voice in my head during the first time when my, my older daughter was going in there, was simple. It said, help those you can. Ah, and I'm thinking to myself, and somebody then within a week or two said, hey, I'm bringing a carrier commitment in, and I don't have anybody going with me. Do you want to go in with me? Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, I do. And I went in there, and I realized at that point in time the importance of me carrying this on was because when my daughters were in treatment in South Jersey, in Florida, in Pennsylvania or whatever, I was praying that there was somebody there that could lift them up the way I was lifted up in recovery. And I know that there's probably parents all over the place and spouses all over the place whose loved one is going into the treatment facility down the road Mm -hmm. that maybe They couldn't help them because they're too close to the situation. There's only certain ways. But maybe something I say, or maybe the Dallas Cowboys jacket I'm wearing can make a significant difference for that individual. So it's all circular. It's all in one thing. So by me trying to help somebody else, I know I was helping my daughters. So that, that was an important reason why I do what I do today. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, well, for, for, let me. I didn't want to interrupt you, but congratulations on your new granddaughter. I'm oh, sure that's you. a wonderful thing. I, you know, new family uh, in sobriety is just it's a it's a neat concept to me. Uh, for instance, you know, like, like I told you earlier, I met my wife. And she, I was 20 years sober. She had a son from a previous marriage. She's never seen me drink. He's never seen me drink, and so they have seen me act like a recovering alcoholic the whole time. Right. Not every day, but. Most of the time, and uh, you know, and, and what you're talking about there, and, and you know, with your daughters is there's some sacrifices we have to make. That recovery and progress are real and convenient sometimes, and we have to sometimes put put our needs aside so that somebody else can get some help. And when you say help those you can, that's a real humility check for me mm. because I want to try to help 
more people than I can. <laughs> Whatever that yeah. statement you know, yeah, uh, yeah. unpacks yeah. into. But yeah. and yes, I have limitations as a as a fifty two year old man. First of all, plus you know I have time limitations. I have all these things, and so I can't help everybody that that needs it. So let me focus on what I can do and not burn up energy where I can't. So thank yeah, you for I, I, that reminder. I, I, I agree that this whole concept of think globally, act locally, um, which I've heard so many times in my job and everything else, was something that you can really apply to this. If I can make the difference for one person, mm-hmm. then, then that, that could be saving the hardship. You know, I had a, my, my, our cousin's son died from this disease uh, in October, okay. 22. And we all think to ourselves that we're only hurting ourselves. And when I went to the wake, there were over 250 people there. Hurting. 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 And I realized at that point in time that one person isn't one person. No. One person is countless numbers of people who otherwise could have been in a, in a joyous period of time through the holidays rather than where they were, this hole in their heart. So, you know, we can't help everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think it's criminal not to try to help somebody in some way. And our responsibility statement is a clear indicator. If you want to know a credo, you want to know what's my vision, what is when anyone anywhere reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA always to be there. And for that, I am responsible. That word responsible. And I can't tell you how important that is to me. I retired, thankfully, <laughs> about four to five years ago. And, and you know, I kept going back to, to the phrase in, in the, I think, in the 12 and 12 about, you know, retiring or, or in, in the big book, actually, about retiring to Florida. I lulls in the Florida place. sunshine. I have this yeah. place in Florida and stuff. But, you know, I am involved. Um, down down there in 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 the program, and, and I think that sometimes sometimes is out of guilt just because of that one part in in the uh, in the book. But it is important for me to understand that I see so many people, yourself included, who have like day jobs. I mean, really have day jobs, and really are trying to do their best. As I had mentioned earlier in this cast, this podcast, that you know when I was working, I tried to be the best worker I could be, yep. not to get money, but to get security. Yeah. You know, because the other thing that has to do with fear, when I think about my fourth step, was fear, a lot of times that had to do with security. Will I be able, what happens if I kick the bucket tomorrow? You know, mm-hmm. is my family set? Yeah. So I encourage anyone who is approaching an age where they're going to be looking at retirement within the next five to 10 years to really consider what it means to be able to do that in regards to being financially secure and to understand what that transition is like and how to better be aware of it. Because I can tell you, when I was 52, I didn't have a thought in my head about retirement, but I worked for a really big company. And when I retired at 62, I had 42 years. So it was all there for me. It was all like written out. When you work for a big company, they take care of everything. Today's world is not usually like that anymore. That's kind of a bygone era. Right. That's less and less now. Yeah. So I, I can't, because the things that can really drive us backwards on our, on our river of life in recovery is, are these financial hardships that start to re- make you realize that mm-hmm. I didn't do a good enough job of planning. Yeah. So, you know, there's plenty of things out there you can do. I have a sponsee who recently 
went to a money manager yep. to try and find and understand what the right way to go is. And, and you know, you have to obviously be careful with that. But if, if, you're, if you're really worried about who to go to, find some old fart that you can talk to who kind of has already gone through it, and they might be able to help you and walk you through the process because there's a lot of things with Medicare and medical bills and everything else that come into play that really have to be aware of. And you can't think of it, if you're gonna retire at 62, you can't think of it when you're 61. You need yeah. about 10 years to try and look at where we are so that you can figure out what am I gonna do when I do retire? Can I stay in this area? Can I do that? These are important factors for recovery. People don't realize the importance of these factors in their long-term sobriety, because that will just eat away at you if you're not taking care of it now. Yeah. And for those of you who don't understand any of that, you don't have to understand the whole process, you can contact, I won't name any names, but I mean, look at TV any day of the week, there's all these places yeah. on there that'll help you try to figure out what to do, how to invest, how to set yourself up for the future, so that then in retirement, you can do the things that you need to do yeah. and you want to do. The greatest thing I have in retirement is that I can volunteer my time. That when somebody says, oh, I can't go tonight to carry it, that I can say, yeah, I can. Do, am I happy about going to do it? And sometimes, mm -hmm. no. Always, yes, in regards to the fact that I'm going to be able to walk in there and make a difference. And that's my goal in there is to do that. But that is, when we work, we work for somebody else. Mm -hmm. When I go into carrier, I'm working for my higher power in, in a way and I understand that it's, it's not just me, it's the people I bring in there. And touching on that a little bit, it's that whole the Dallas Cowboys jackets, the whole kind of what are we presenting? What is AA? If anybody's involved with AA or NA or any A right now, you can go in and you can see this great cross-section of people. Yeah. The demographic is limitless. You have people who are 80 years old and you have people who are 13 or 14 years old in these programs, the men and women. So when we have an obligation to fulfill, like bringing meetings into treatment centers and doing things like that, we need to show that. We need to bring those people in that aren't like the two old guys in the corner, like what's that Muppet show where the two guys in the balcony yeah. complaining I about forget everything. their names, but yeah. I've seen too many of that, you know, so, so I didn't mean to digress really, but I think it kind of could potentially be a segue into what, what things are yeah, oh, no, I, I, when you were talking, I, I was reminded, you know, again, you said about your cousin, he was 22 and there yeah. were all these people there and, and that it isn't you know, about one person, one life. And when I was first sober and I would, I would be a pain in the ass about this or that. And, and my sponsor would finally say, listen, you don't have to do any things I'm asking you to do. The only people who are going to get hurt are you and everyone that loves you. Right. And I was like, uh. Yeah, well, well, uh, what do you do with that? It's like, but he's right. Like, like, and he had to put it to me in that direct way. So I would say, this is this is just not about me only. It is about me, but there's other people that care about me and that I care about, and I, I don't want to be that wrecking ball in their lives anymore. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a, uh, and and it's been a long time in recovery to understand all these thoughts that um, yeah, I could sit here and say freely now, but it was like turning around an aircraft carrier exactly. <laughs> back then, exactly. you know, the amount of time it took to do that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and, and again, I wanted to, uh, to talk a little bit about uh, where we're going next here. And cause now you are 23 years sober, mm -hmm. you know, you're, you've been working the program, you go to meetings and a lot of 
people rest on their laurels at this point. Uh, not everybody, but it tends to happen. It's yeah. it's easy to do. I, I go to a meeting and I may be the most sober, have the most time in the room by a few years. You know, not, not by. And people are kind of waiting to hear what I have to say. Well, I I could just tell you the way I talked to my wife today, or the way I talked to my my students today at school, or I could tell you I could tell you what I did today. But that, that's you know what, what I'm like today, and it is a buildup of all the things I've done over the past thirty years. But please understand. All the mistakes I've made have been in the past 30 years as well. So I really try not to sit here and say, but I'm whatever I do, oh, but I'm sober, so it's okay. Because it isn't okay. And so I'd like you to share a little bit what your next adventure is you know, in your sobriety. <laughs> well, recently I was kind of volunteered for a role in in the district in that we are in mm-hmm. New Jersey. And that was as um, the chairperson for the treatment center mm-hmm. committee for our district, which then rolls up into the area yep. treatment facility committee, uh, which then in, that, that encompasses all of northern New Jersey. And really it's about when people make that decision, as I did 20, almost 24 years ago, or anybody else, and, and it involves going into a treatment center, that decision to make, sometimes the decision is made for us, of course, and we understand that. But it's how can we take that window of opportunity and make the most of it? Because there's seldom that we get as malleable a mind as we do when people are in treatment. Because Mm -hmm. they're hearing all day the different things that they're getting from the treatment center. So how do we best do that moving forward? So for me, it's really about getting involved in every aspect of it. It's working with the treatment facility itself. And the one that I go to right down the road, their staff is amazing. And it's a facility that I went to and I got sober in. And when we went and started, when I started this, well, like I said, I've been going to this facility in a capacity of bringing meetings in for well over 12 years because I was trying to be the example to my daughter and all that kind of stuff before she went and got sober. So 13, 14 years I've been going in there because I started going there when she was in the throes of all of this. And I've seen it evolve and I've seen, you know, as being sometimes a quiet spectator sitting in there with only having a couple of minutes left to kind of speak because you go in there with the standard thing and one person talks about their drunk log for 20 minutes and the next person talks about their drunk log for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And by that time, everybody's asleep. Right. Right. And it's like, okay, this, I don't really think this is what we're trying to do. So I started to change things up several years ago and I was, um, I was not, Looked at again, I was not the the most back to the baseball commissioner days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> but I, I, I persevered and I realized that we got a lot more by including the people in there because we would speak to them like we're just talking to everybody, you know, with an assumption, oh, they've been here, done that, and they know everything. So we're gonna talk about step eight tonight. It's like <laughs> bringing things in now. We we have new guidelines that we try and bring in. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to do is make connections. Yep. Right? What we have is a huge drop-off when people are exiting a treatment center, Uh this kind of environment, and entering into a 12-step program environment. And that's the biggest drop-off that we have anywhere. It's that there is this trepidation on anybody's part to walk from that where you've been guided now for several weeks, if if that's the case, and you're doing the rehab and everything else, and IOP and everything – into this, this where you have to take the initiative to, to do that. So what we try to do now is understanding that 
and understanding this is our biggest opportunity. People talk about percentages of recovery and all this kind of stuff. I don't buy into that at all. What I buy into is that we can do better and mm -hmm. that we should do better. So when I go in there, the things that I've tried to bring in, and not just me, I work with two wonderful guys in this program. I mean, that, that are, I, I, I can't say enough about them. I mean, talk, and again, these people have like day jobs and they're doing all this stuff. So for me to say, I, 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 maybe I was the one that had some of the things of trying to push hard to start to get this discussion going, yeah. but certainly they're the ones that put it on paper and did all this. So now we have guidelines for people when they go in and we're still, it's a work in progress, Sure, sure. but the, what's the goal here? I mean, we have to think holistically. We have to think globally, but act locally, right? We have to do all this stuff. Get involved with the treatment center people. And for anybody listening to this podcast, there's treatment facilities near you yeah. that you also can get involved with. Go to your local AA meeting and say, hey, who here goes to a treatment facility? Maybe you can get involved. You can go in there and you can talk to people. I ask people when I go in, who are you and why are you here? Meaning, are you an alcoholic or are you an addict? How many, and then I'll ask, like, how many people have been involved with AA before? No, usually, like, everybody's hand goes up except one or two. So now I don't even ask that anymore. It's like, how many people here have never been involved with AA or any 12-step program? And depending on how many hands put up, that dictates where the meeting goes. Okay. Because I don't want to be talking over anybody. Yep. Like, okay, you're all in fifth grade. I want to teach algebra today. Yeah, right. You know, okay. How is anybody going to get anything out of that? But keeping it simple, right? That's part of our slogans, right? Keep yeah. it simple. Making a difference, right? Understanding. A lot of times when you go into treatment facilities, they have NA program, AA program, all these different things going yep. on. A lot of times one doesn't show up or the other one doesn't show up. They're all put together. So we have to also understand that the, our, our treatment of how we discuss our 12-step our programs needs to be a bit more malleable. And to find out how far you can go with that, you need to understand what the treatment facility is asking you to do. Right, Because if the treatment facility is asking you to do this, you have to try to do that. And sometimes it's a, like I said, it's two steps forward, one step back. Yeah. But what we have noticed in our area, just from my personal observation, but also those of the people that are going in with me, that there's a lot more people staying in recovery as a result of this. You know, I went into a pro and, and, and this is, so we do this. We make sure in this facility that we go to that every night in this they have two, they have a psychiatric unit and an alcohol and drug rehab. Mm -hmm. We make sure that every night of the month, there's a meeting in both those areas. Okay. And, and I think that's important because we need to show continuity and commitment. Yeah. Not only is it important for the people that are in there, it's important for the home groups throughout the area who have put their hands up and said, we'll do the third right. Tuesday of the month to be able to go in there and make that commitment and bring people in. Because it's not just the people that are in the facility that we're trying to keep sober. Yep. It's the people that are going in that we're trying to keep sober. They used to have this rule, you have to have a year before you can go in. I'm like, well, that's counterintuitive because number one, the people that are in there can't relate. When I was in there, and I go back to my own thing, yeah. I'd go in there, somebody I have eight years. To me, that's infinity. Right, that, that's yeah, like, okay, that's the universe never ends. Oh, okay, well, great, I don't understand that. But if somebody came in there and said, yeah, I just got through my 90 days. Oh boy, I'm sitting up. Yeah. How'd you do that? So what I try to do is bring in people all the time that I don't want to go in with somebody of my own demographic. I'm 66. Right. I don't want to bring in another 66-year-old male. You yep. know, I want to go in there with different people, with different amounts of time to yep. make sure that people understand this. And there's, it's amazing when I bring in people who have less time, how much these people gravitate towards them. Because at the end right. of the meeting, I always look, 
Who are they going up to? My job really is to make sure that I can do that. We, we had an experience a few weeks ago, brought these two wonderful ladies in, and they were so involved. They were showing so much compassion in this meeting. It was the first time they'd ever been into the alcohol and drug rehab because we had done some IOP stuff before okay. that. And we walked out of there and they were abuzz. Their cheeks are rosy. Yeah. They are so happy. And she said, do you think we made a difference? I said, well, there's two people that I know tonight that will stay sober because of tonight. Right. And, right. and they said, who? I said, you. Because that was a more important thing. And these two people have like nine months. Yeah. And to see their face and the realization, you know, it's like I said, when that guy said to me, it's a miracle after a year, my boss, yeah. it's a year. I saw their faces and the realization that, my gosh, I did make a difference, not just for them, but for myself. Right. In, in, in nine short months, look what I've done. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. To, and for them to acknowledge that and realize, yes, you've made a, a huge difference in your life and those around you in just nine months. Yeah. And it's easier for me to have them speak what they learned. You know, one of the things that they brought up and I try to get people who've gone through the whole program, because what we found over time, and all of us know that sometimes like seven days in a, in a detox or even 30 days or 28 days of insurance allows any of that is not enough. No. You know, it's not enough. Yeah. IOP is a great way for people to get a better understanding. The treatment facility I go to has an alumni program, which I'm happy to participate in. And mm -hmm. I've been trying to go now regularly every month for their meeting. And everybody in there basically is alumni, but they've only anywhere from like three months till like two years. A couple of years, yeah, right. You know, three years at the most. And but but they're all there and they're all giving an update as to where they are this week and where they are. And I think that's an important factor as well. One of the other things, again, I talk about connections is I try to make sure that some of the groups that go in there, they'll do APA and then a couple of weeks later they'll do Oh, they'll the, split the, it up the, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Do the other facility and then 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 maybe do IOP. Okay. Uh, to show you how that worked, we did this as a, as a kind of a test. Went me and St. Well, me and one lady went into a, the 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 APA group, which is the psychiatric unit, and we saw certain people in there. And then the next couple of weeks later, I went in with the two ladies who've been in through an IOP program, and we went in there and we saw some of the same people that were in there. And by then we were like, hey, how are you doing? And everything like that. Then they were getting out a couple of weeks later and we happened to be in the alumni meeting and they were introduced into the alumni meeting because it was their last night in the rehab, which okay. is something that's new for the treatment facility. They came in and we greeted each other like we were long lost family members. That's so nice. And what we talk about in there is connections to AA might not be as difficult as you thought they were. Right. Now I've gone to two subsequent alumni meetings and those same people have showed up there. So we made a difference yeah. in, in my opinion, because they gravitated towards going to these meetings. So that was important because we have programs, Bridging the Gap, which is a great AA program, underutilized, but I think it's because it's not being publicized the right way to mm -hmm. the treatment centers and how do we actually make those connections happen so that nobody feels they have to leave the treatment center and then go on their own to a meeting that they can go with somebody. I was lucky. I had my sponsor right across the way. So he dragged me to the meeting right. the night that I left the, the treatment center. The following day, I had to go to a meeting by myself. And I went and I sat in the last row by the door by myself and didn't say a word. So it is important because, you know, if you're sitting there, if you think I've been going to meetings for three years and I'm not getting anything out of it, look around you. Where are you sitting? Mm -hmm. How much are you saying anything? Did you get involved with anything? Yeah. Are you going on speaking commitments? If you're not, then you're going to have a struggle. Right. So yeah. 
I get very compassionate. I don't want to say passionate because passionate is very, very obsessive, but compassionate. I'm trying to show compassion because I was there. Yeah. And when I look into people's eyes, they can see that I was there. When they listen to me speak, they know I'm speaking from my heart, not hopefully from my brain and more hopefully not from my ass. Yeah. You know, right. so. <laughs> yeah, I recently was uh, at a meeting and met a couple uh, in the meetings. There's some van or something brought a group there. And when they were going around introducing, saying who's, who's new. And so these seven people all said, you know, my name is so-and-so. I'm first time, first time. And uh, one of the folks, and this is because I, I, I live around here as well. And this was near work. So it was 35 miles away. And one of the folks there, you know, as we're passing around phone numbers after the meeting, he comes over and he says, oh, I noticed your area code is the same as mine. Would would you mind if I gave you a call? I said, he said, because most of the phone numbers they're getting are, are not in the area that I'm going to be living in. And I said, I said, no, no, of course you can. And so I reached out to him and to hear the gratitude in his voice of, you mean you took time out of your day to, to reach out to me? I thought I was only supposed to call you. And I think there's a little bit of a myth that I have to wait for you to call me because you're new and I'm not. And when I, you know, I, I've said this on the podcast before that the chapter says working with others. Not, so with means I make the phone call also. Yeah. And you know, he's getting out in probably a week or two, or I'm not sure exactly what the process is, but because you know, he's, he just got phone privileges back. So it's hard to get a hold of him and, but we'll figure it out. And it's, you know, who, who feels pretty good about it? I know I do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know I do. Yeah. And, and but that wasn't your intention. No, it was just, just to help a guy who I could tell yeah. needed help. And, and of course he's looking at me being much older than him, but I t- I'm trying to, cause he says, Oh yeah, I'm 23. I'm, I was in medical school and, and I wasn't doing so well. And I, and I said, well, I, I was also 23 when I got, you know, when I was so, and, uh, you were, I said, yeah, I, you don't see that now, but I do understand where you are. And like you said, that connection of, I see you and I see where you are. And when someone hears that and can, can tell by the way you're talking, by the way you're acting, you know, that connection just gets stronger and stronger. And, and, and we have to do that more, more and more. So I, I, I'm glad you brought that up and I'm kind of like twisting it around here a little bit. I okay. hope you don't mind. No. But I did want to talk a little bit about the symbiotic relationship that we need to maintain with the people we're trying to help. Mm -hmm. And you touched on that immediately was that I called them. And I think that that's really, there's an old school thought that you don't call me, I'm not going to call you kind of thing. And really putting it on people who really don't have an understanding of what that means and the importance. And even though they really want to talk to somebody, they're afraid to make that phone call. So a lot of times there is this give and take that needs to be done. And that goes on throughout. And, you know, I've sponsored many people and I, I've tried to, when I've done that, make it as symbiotic as I possibly mm-hmm. could to make sure that they understood that I care. And if you're not calling back, if you're, if you're not the one initiating the call sometimes, people start to think they don't care. Yeah. You know, and, and you find, and then pe- when people say, you know, my sponsee isn't calling me anymore. I don't look at it as being the sponsee's fault whatsoever. I start to ask those questions like, well, did you try calling them? See, no, they got to call me. I said, no, no, no. That's not how it works. Read how it works. It tells you right in there, work with others. And just what you touched on, that we need to work with others. We need to do that. And even transitioning from a 
sponsorship role, which is this clearly defined role. You know, if anybody wants to see that, you can go on to look at Mr. Sponsor Pants and things like this. And it tells you how to take people through the steps. But then people want you to be their sponsor after that. So what's your role then? Just take them through the steps again? Or do you try and help mentor them? Yeah. Do you try and let them and try and understand? I always look at sobriety sometimes as being, we don't want somebody to fall over. But if people don't, I'd like, as like I like to say, skin their knees, mm -hmm. they're not really going to learn anything. It's like using a GPS all the time, right? Yeah. You know, if you got ways on all the time, you know where the cops are, you know where the traffic jams are and all that kind of stuff. And you're not going to kind of, which is very good for, for now, but, but really you're not going to learn a lot. You know, I know a lot of people have used GPS and, and then if they don't have it, they couldn't figure out how to go to a place that they've gone to 50 times. Right. So sometimes you need to let people skin their knees. I look at some of the role as being a mentor, the difference between a sponsor and a mentor. I always look at those, you know, the bowling, you know, when, when kids go bowling and they put those things up at the edge, the bumpers at the edge where the ball doesn't go into the gutter. I think at some point in time, we have to become those bumpers. I'm the bumper. And, right. <laughs> and we have to understand that people have to start making because you know what? Anybody will tell you that you learn more when you're going through a stressful situation than you do ever if you're complacent. I look at it as sobriety. Our recovery is like, like paddling up a river a wide river that you're going up and it's really great a lot of the time because you're just paddling nice and easy. It doesn't matter. Sometimes you hit rapids. You have to paddle like hell to go up yeah. the rapids. But most times you're kind of just paddling. But what's the one thing that a river's going to do if you stop paddling? It's going to keep going. It's going to take you backwards. Yeah, right. You're going to start going backwards. Now picture yourself on the Niagara River. Ooh, that's what's going to happen to any of us. So that paddling, that moving forward in recovery, that moving forward in life, it's not about the destination. I like to look at stages, right? If you're early in recovery, put a goal out there. Okay, can you look at that? You know, where do you want to be in two years? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then talk about it and then see, well, what would you need to put in place to make that happen? Give someone a direction and yeah. let them go towards it and see what's going to happen to them. And that really helps people then start to understand the importance of stepping stones, of, of stages on a grander quest, you know? Life is very interesting and it's filled with things that you have you you have to learn how to accept or you have to have the courage to change. Yeah. These prayers that we do in 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 AA, the things I was like that's such a great prayer. The the mm. the serenity prayer to me is great because the second verse is live one day at a time, enjoy one moment at a time, accept hardships as the pathway to peace. I struggled with that last part for an awful long time, but what I understand from it is Basically, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Yeah. It makes me better understand things. It makes me realize what people are going through. It makes me be able to be compassionate in a way that I don't have to use words. I can put my arms around someone and understand and help absorb some of the pain they're feeling. Right. You know, just like I need that with myself sometimes. Those are the things that we learn here and how we need to treat people. With sponsees, even for me. After a certain time, I realize as a sponsor, I sometimes, because sponsees usually think I got to stay with this guy. You know, mm -hmm. it's like kind of, they, they kind of think that way. Yeah. Sometimes it's up to me. When I feel that there's not a lot more I can give this person, I kind of say, you know, why don't you start looking around for a new sponsor? You, you know, somebody of that kind of yeah. ilk that, that I was associated with. At the time, I thought I was going to Florida sooner than I ended up going because my higher power had other plans. But certainly it wasn't, also, it wasn't just that. It was to try and make sure that sometimes we need to pass the baton or yeah. else we're going to find people stagnating. 
And our goal is to never let someone in our care stagnate right. or become complacent. And so new challenges are open. After five years, maybe it is time to go through the steps again. You know, maybe it is time to go and find somebody else that you can associate with. And maybe new horizons will open up for you. So don't anyone think that you're obligated to stay with someone that you don't really feel you're getting enough out of. Make a change. Go to meetings enough that you're going to find people that you can, you know, and and don't just rely on your one sponsor as, as your sponsor, as the person that's going to give you direction all the time. It's this lens, this perspective that we gain in AA for me has always been based on all the people I see in AA. It's like the facets of a diamond, right? If we just have one person that we listen to all the time, what happens is that's just one one facet of a diamond. The more we can listen to other people that we get and we can understand and and we feel are compassionate and can, can help us in certain regards, a lot of times if you have kids, finding somebody that's gone through, and you mentioned that earlier in the podcast, that's gone through that stuff. Like maybe an old fart like me who's gone through this whole transition into retirement that people can say, hey, can you help me with something? And I'd be happy to do that. And I would, you know, that's that's what I'm there for because it's about living, right? Living joyous, happy, free. So that that is that is a very helpful thing to to try to understand. Find the people when when my kids were going through this, like I said, I, I I I. took my daughter and said, you can't live here anymore. I learned that in a program. It was the most loving thing you did for her. A- absolutely. At the time. Yeah and, yeah. and I would never have done that if I wasn't in the program and asking questions. Right. And didn't have the support. Right. Yeah. And that added another facet to the, to the diamond right. so that we could become more brilliant in the future. But what it is, it allows us to look through many lenses and we can start to gain a better perspective on things and not just use our own thinking to solve a problem because- that leads us back to the dark side. Right. But, and, but eventually use those prisms yes. to focus the light. Oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. We use it to, to diverge the light, but we can focus as well. And as we're talking about the stages and the name of this podcast is called Seasons of Sobriety. There you go. You know, and I am in a different season than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and so forth. So you, you are in a different season as well. And, and you know, to, just to play on the the title of the podcast, but that's where I kind of started with this thing. Like, where where are any of us after time in the program? And what you're doing now with the treatment and the helping the people, you perhaps didn't have time 20 years ago or 15 years ago. You 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 are in a place where you can do this. And the sponsorship piece, because I have found I too over time working with someone become not a great fit anymore. We were five years ago, whatever, and now we're not a good fit for that type of relationship. We can go do stuff together, play golf, but I don't know that I'm the guy you need to turn to for, for guidance at this point. You seem to be at a different place and want different things in that aspect. And it's okay. My feelings won't be hurt. I think you should find someone who's a better fit if I'm not the person. Again, help the people I can. Yeah. You know, because there's some people at a, I could help you for a while and now I can't because let's say you moved to Colorado and I'm still in New Jersey. I really, you know, the phone calls really are not sufficient enough for us to keep that connection. You need to sit down face to face with someone so they can look at you when they're, you're lying to them. 
Yeah. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Know? Yeah. So. So yeah, that's you know, that, that's great stuff. One thing that I've seen, and I, by just being in the program as long as I haven't gone to different areas and like in Florida and stuff like that, you see things that can go drastically wrong with some of the things that people think of. I've been in there and I have, and this is recent, and I've seen it more than once where people say, you know, well, yeah, I have, uh, I have 10 sponsees. Oh, yeah, well, I have 15 sponsees. This is actual yep. conversations that you. we've had down here. And it's like I look at it and I say to myself, my God, what's happening? It's not about the quantity. It never is about the quantity. It's about what can I deliver to make this one person? If you're getting along with that, then it's like spinning the plates on the Ed Sullivan show back in the day. I'm showing yep. my age now. But how many plates can you spin before plates start dropping? Right. Right. And in today's day, in age and the types of things that are out there, when that plate drops, there's no guarantee that they're making it back in. Mm-hmm. And I, as you know, I had another good friend of mine pass away last week mm. from this disease. And, and it's devastating when I see that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it does if affect us in, Absolutely. to understand the life or death struggle that so many people are going through. And we sometimes trivialize, oh, it's my 10th time in rehab. You know, it's like, what they're not saying is inside I'm crying, I'm hurting, and I don't know what to do. I've tried this and it's not working. How can I get better? And, and I don't have the answers for everybody. No. I might have the answer for somebody. Yeah, I mean, sometimes it's, I, I, I feel a little responsible to say, so do you think you have an 11th time or no? Oh, yeah. Do you? Because you might, and that's okay, but make sure you do because you just might not. Yeah, and, and today with, with the, these newer, more potent drugs that are being added yep. to certain things and not just heroin anymore, there's a lot of people who are dying now because they're, they're taking prescription drugs and, and, and doing cocaine and stuff like that that now is containing this substance fentanyl and and even stronger stuff and and they're just it's a horrible thing i mean in 2017 70,000 people died died of of drug related overdoses um i always like to temper that by saying in in that same year 80,000 people died of of alcohol related stuff and but the alcohol kind of comes in because there's a lot of other things that happen there's the the liver disease and stuff like this and and also the 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 collateral damage that a lot of people do it's not just the taking of one's own life it's the banging into cars and killing other people and you see that all over and it's 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 not acceptable but how do we change it and what i see is sometimes we say we got to change the whole system it's the only way we can do it and, and I still think it needs to be from the bottom up. I think we need to continue to try to bring in meetings to try and make ourselves available. Like you said, put our names down. Get that person to give me their number as well. Because there's so many times you write a name on the back of a meeting book and you hand it out, but you never get the number of the person. Yeah. How is that going to help that person? Because it's very difficult. I never get calls from anybody on there. The only ones I do get is when I call them and say, hey, how are you doing? Right, because they're like, "Oh, who is this?" <laughs> yeah, because the amount of fear they have to make that phone call is geometrically more than oh, mine. Yeah. I don't have any, so they, they're they're not going to do it. So the next thing I wanted to talk about is, and I, and I bring this to light in each episode that I can, is what literature outside of AA, twelve steps, twelve traditions, or the Big Book or other literature, have you picked up on that has really enhanced your recovery? Well, uh, I, I, I like to talk about that a little bit because, you know, I've, I've spent, a, you know, very, very many years, 
kind of in a, like an ignorant state about this higher level of understanding, mm-hmm. higher power and things of that nature. And it's, it's to me very difficult. And I certainly don't want to step on anybody's toes because for me, it's more of a concept yeah. than it is anything else. So from a literature perspective, one of the things that I decided I want to do is before I start putting down the Bible and everything that's in the Bible or whatever, is, what if I understand the Bible? So there's, there's a book by Rob Bell that's called his, it's called, here's a great name, What is the Bible, mm-hmm. right? And it's how an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything. Okay. Okay. So that's the kind of stuff that I want to try to read to try and understand. And we're actually sitting now in, in, a, in a, my neighbor's house, and he's my, what I call, spiritual advisor. But basically what he is, he's bringing to the table an aspect of uh, religious belief mm-hmm. that I'm, I'm just not aware of. I mean, to me, I'm uh, not as willing to jump into any church group because okay. there's so many variations of them that I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I, I have this kind of understanding of myself of what, how big, how infinite my higher power is. And, and it, to me, sometimes religions, no matter what they are, are kind of like stuffing them in a box somewhere. So that, and the right. only way you can get to this, this, this next level or whatever is to buy following their doctrine and we start to idolize the church more so than, than, than appreciate what, what, what the word is. Right. So this book I found to be interesting because in the, the Rob Bell book, What is the Bible? Because it helped me better understand what was allegorical as opposed to what is real, you know, because like the Jonah and the whale and stuff like that. Okay. Yeah, right. We're not you selling know. sheep back and forth to each other. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. It also taught me certain things. A book of laws is the Old Testament. A book of grace is the New Testament. So for people who want to believe whatever it is that they want to believe, mm-hmm. The book that got me the most, and, and actually it's a book by Emmett Fox, who was very instrumental in helping Bill W. in regards to putting together the big book. Yeah. Not necessarily by working with him, but this grand design that, that we talk about. And, and Emmett Fox, although he's a, he has a book called The Sermon on the Mount. And underneath it, I always like to look at this, it says, The Key to Success in Life. Uh-huh. And this book really kind of touches on what did the Sermon on the Mount actually entail? Jesus speaking on the mountain. But even before that, certain things and elements that were brought about. And what I liked about this was it didn't, it didn't Christianize everything. Okay. Even though it's this, it's how it can apply to anybody. And right in the beginning, he kind of like makes a statement that This isn't about Christianity. This isn't about the church. This is about how anybody anywhere can live a life that is joyous, happy, and free in regards to the fact that there's, do we really know, need to know these certain things? I mean, or do we try to just understand that these principles of trying to do good for other people, to be kind, to love. One of the things in here that I think was the most striking He's, he goes through the Lord's Prayer, right? And yeah, I'm thinking, you know, yeah, yeah. And it just becomes this thing that we learned when we were little kids as Christians, uh, Catholic or whatever. And it's like, it's the same as now I lay me down to sleep. We don't understand the words at all. So he breaks it down. But the first thing, and I loved it the most, was this, our Father and out in heaven. What does that mean? It's our Father, right? It's not my Father. Yeah. It's not your Father. Right. If you have a different religious belief than I do, it's our Father. And that's for all the people of the world. It's our Father out in heaven. If this is the way how we find our conduit to our higher power, that's fine. If, if not, there's another thing. But I think it breaks down this whole 
premise of the thing that I find is there's a lot of contention between even between different Christian groups. You know, oh, my way is better than your way or Catholic. I'm a this, I'm a that or Judaism is, is another aspect there. But it's all we're on this earth together and we're just trying to really help one another. And I think that it, it falls in line very much with recovery and the AA program because it doesn't talk about a specific religion, even mm-hmm. though it's mentioning this. It's just like some of the prayers we read, right? The St. Francis prayer mm-hmm. is, I think, probably the best prayer I ever read. And it just happened to be written by a really smart guy yeah. way back when. And guess what? If you were smart and you weren't writing pairs or something like that, they burned you at the stake <laughs> pretty much. So what does that say? It just says, be that person to comfort people who need comforting to profess love, not hate. These are the things that we need to do in the program. So those are two books that I think are, uh, especially the Emmett Fox book, that should be on anybody's list, no matter where you come from. I, I've had okay. people who are, who are Hindu read this book and say, wow, I get it. And it's about going out and then try to not focus on giving the word of your understanding, but just to give a word. And one of the things I try to do when I'm at treatment centers, and, and, and I think it's very important, is every time I go, I find those people that said, no, I haven't been a, 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 with AA before. I don't understand it. At the end, I go to them and I give them this 24-hour coin, mm-hmm. right? And I give it to them and I try to explain the importance of it. I said, yes, there's a prayer in the back. It's the serenity prayer. But it's really to help you understand the importance of acceptance, because we can't accept certain things. And in there, it's very important for them to understand they can't change the past. They need to live for today. They can't project into the future because who the hell knows what's going on. And that there's unity, recovery, and service are the three sides of the triangle on there. And that I always say that if you know, well, I don't always say, but sometimes I'll say the next time you ha- want to have a drink, chew on this instead. <laughs> and it's been surprising because I can tell you right now how many instances where somebody comes back to me a year, two years later, and says, you gave me my coin. And they'll have it like embedded on the the front of their big book cover or something. And it's not me. It's not like I say, yeah, look what I did. It's not me. It's this program. It's this clear understanding that if you just read the book, big book, with somebody, never alone. Sorry, I'm not a believer in that you'll get any. It's like trying to read the Bible alone. Guess what? I got nothing. I don't understand any of it. But with somebody, you can read it and get a better understanding of what it is they meant to be, whether you agree with it or not. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with just giving out a coin is the hand. That's the hand of AA, you know, sometimes. You for me. Yeah. And I'm surprised how many people have come back to me and said, you know, that that made a difference. I didn't I don't remember what you said, but you giving me that coin when I was like down and out and saying congratulations. Yeah, they- that word kind of filtered through my head. It's like, what the hell am I? I'm, I'm in treatment. Right now, congratulations, you earned this. Yeah. You know, that one day is so important on the long road of recovery. Hmm. So well said. Yeah, I, I'm i so grateful that AA created an environment where I could be the person that God meant me to be. Exactly. To, to help other people to be like the St. Francis, you know, a vessel of his of his will, of his, of his message. And so, yeah, this has been great. I, I really... I really want to thank you for just everything you've, you've brought here today. Is there, is there anything else you wanted to, to get out there that uh, maybe we didn't cover? But 
Now, because of the fact that we kind of delved into a little bit of kind of spirituality and stuff like that, the one thing I can say, whether you're spiritual, whether you believe, no matter what you do or don't believe, I had the benefit of being able to go some to, to some meditation meetings. Uh, mm-hmm. a, a sponsee who, who I work closely with started a meditation meeting. And, and going to that meditation meeting was very important to me. It helped me learn how to block things out, kind of, and kind mm-hmm. of like learn how to breathe and bring me back to some kind of normal heart rhythm and stuff like that. That was very important to me. So if anybody out there wanted to look into that more, there's, there's, there's ample opportunity even online for you know meditation meetings that you can do online. And I think that's an important thing because it doesn't matter about whether you're an, uh, an atheist, an agnostic, a uh, uh, Catholic, a uh, uh, Muslim, or what you are, a Hindu, it, everyone can meditate. Mm-hmm. And, and the last thing I'll say is just back to the carrier for one second to tell you the power of what it is, what we do when we try and go in there. We can make a difference without doing anything. There was a young Indian man who came with me. He only had about three months in. He said, I don't want to say anything. I just want to see what you're doing. And I took a couple of people and I brought him in. And in that night, just so happened that in that room, there was an Indian mm-hmm. man who was older. Wow. And we sat in there. This guy said nothing at, at all through the whole meeting. At the end of the meeting, the gentleman that was in there who was Indian came over and gave him the biggest hug and just cried his eyes out because he felt finally, you know, that he could relate with somebody. And he thanked this guy that we brought in with us a thousand times over for being mm. there. It was probably the most impactful thing, he, as he, this is his own guy's words, that had ever happened to him ever in his life, that he saw the power of the program just by be him being there. He made a difference in that man's ability to start his road to recovery. Mm. And so that's what it is. We don't know who we can help and how we can help, but it goes back to being that example, always. It's not so much what you say, it's just being there. Be there for the next person who wants to, who's putting their hand up for help. We need to be there for them. Thank you, Dennis. I think I think that's a great place to stop. And, sure. And again, thank you for taking the time to, to be with me and making the arrangements to uh, to sit together face to face. I really really appreciate your story, and I appreciate your your compassion and, and what you do for the people in the program. Thank you for inviting me, and I just think the world of what you're doing and bringing in this great cross section of people in recovery and how they view things and and how much we can all learn by listening. And I've listened to some of the podcasts that you've created and I've gotten something out of every single one. So thank you for your service. I appreciate it. We have come to the end of this episode of the Season of Sobriety podcast. I trust that you were able to identify with the personal story of our guest and perhaps apply some of their experience to give you the hope needed to persevere through your own journey. If you'd like to be a guest on the show or would like to suggest a guest, please send an email to podcast at seasonsofsobriety.com. The email address can also be found in the show notes. This podcast has been completely self-funded. If you believe today's episode has been beneficial, I ask that you either contribute a little extra this week to your home group or other meetings or consider a donation directly to the podcast. This can be done at our website, seasonsofsobriety.com, which can also be found in the show notes. Until next time, remember, if you have trouble practicing the principles of the steps in all your affairs, you may have too many affairs.